North South Connection Podcast Network. Welcome back to another edition of Cronoso. And uh, today we're going to dive deep into, uh, you know, some good stuff. And uh, we're going to get out right to it right away. My name's Aaron. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for keeping up with the, uh, with the, uh, the program and everything. And listen, when I was in your shoes, when I was someone who was just listening to podcasts, I didn't really uh, enjoy Shakespeare or see its value at all. I didn't understand it. I thought it was boring. But now I do it almost exclusively for a living. So something must have changed, right? That or I'm completely miserable, which is also possible. So why? Why have I made my professional life about a guy from 500 years ago? See, I think the stories that he tells on top of being great offers us very unique lessons that are still relevant today. And I think it goes beyond just talking about literary themes and whatnot. And that's what we're going to explore today. Now, my experience with Shakespeare is, is quite extensive. My first experience uh, was when I was in secondary two. And I liked it well enough. Since then, I've had the pleasure of directing 38 Shakespearean productions. I've acted in almost 40. And, uh, you know, I got to play a lot of the great characters, which is really good. And what's cool about these plays is the more I delve into Shakespearean plays, uh, the more I come away thinking that I'm working with some truly transcendent texts. And this has kind of come to me as I've gotten older. To give you some context, for example, when I first played Macbeth when I was 25 years old, uh, it, you know, I didn't really grasp it. And the last time I played Macbeth was 38. And I can't tell you how much of the profundity of Macbeth I missed the first time. The mere fact that we can keep coming back to these texts and unearthing something new every time is wonderful on its own. But I don't think that's a good enough reason to still go back to them and to still study them. In fact, I think there's probably some good reasons not to study them. So it's like, why study a play at all? Like, I love the stories, but most of them aren't even really Shakespeare's stories. The language is outdated. Uh, it's a barrier for most people to get them interested in Shakespeare. And I think, too, the most obvious thing I'm going to tell you here is that when you're introduced to these texts, you're usually sitting behind a desk and reading them as part of a class. And that's just, you're never going to get the full grasp that way. Never, never, never. And, uh, you know, if we were me and you were to get together, I could get up and show you stuff. But again... You know, that's not the most interesting thing in the world. In the end, Shakespeare needs to be approached from the perspective that it's not about watching someone else do stuff. Instead, it's about opening up the potential for you to experience it and enjoy it. It's about connection to the piece. And today, I'm hoping to get you a little more connected to two of his works, Macbeth and Romeo and Juliet. So how actors connect to something is by looking for objectives. We don't look at things through the lens of themes. Uh, that's usually the director's job. And even then, that doesn't always lend itself really well to telling a story in a compelling way. So to look at Macbeth, for instance, from a top-down perspective based on themes, in many ways imposes that theme on the piece. Is there a theme of ambition in Macbeth? Sure. Is it the most pertinent theme? Not even close. It is the most obvious one, though. But if you look at why the characters do the things they do, then I think you'll find that underneath it, there's something far more dangerous at play and a truth about something extremely dangerous and pernicious in your own life. So here's the thing. None of you can probably ever relate to being a king or a queen. Not to dash any dreams, but let's be somewhat realistic. It's also unlikely that any of you will ever be given absolute power. So how can you relate to the topics of ambition and absolute power? And I think you can understand them on a conceptual level. 
But it's not like you'll understand them on a practical level. And I think the reason why we still study Shakespeare today is due to his incredible sense of human nature. I also think there's really important lessons to be learned within these texts, especially transcendent texts. Transcendent texts are everywhere. Like, why do we study old texts at all? Why aren't we just pushing through with new stuff at all times? I can't make the argument that old stuff is better than new stuff or anything of the sort. Uh, but I do think that when you find something that speaks to real truth about the human experience, I think it's hard to let go of that. And I think you actually do so at your peril, right? When I say truth too, I don't mean facts. So when we look at a fantastical play, like say A Midsummer Night's Dream, it's a fantasy. But it's true. What's true about it is when you try to control a force as powerful as love, you end up messing things up for yourself. That's what I mean by truth. And we have tons of these. There's tons of these. There's a reason um, that three of the world's major religions pull from the same stories. The story of Cain and Abel is told very early in most religious texts. And the fact of Cain and Abel existing um, or not, like if they're real people or not, it's completely irrelevant to the story. It taps into a truth. Now, the story goes that the two brothers, uh, of the two brothers, Abel works hard, makes sacrifice, and as a consequence, everybody likes him and his life is great. And it's true that living around, um, living around those that are not, like, if you live around people and you're not as successful, that can make you resentful. And if you're faced with I, like an ideal, if it's right in your face, and you, an ideal of what your life should be, if that's shown in your face and you can't achieve that ideal, then you will try to destroy that ideal. And that's exactly what happens in Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel and it's presented as the first murder, which in that canon it is. But the message is clear. Ideals are nonsense. And if you compare yourself to them, you do them at your peril. If that's too old a story for you, consider the foundation of many of the modern day superheroes. See, they work because they tap into truth. There's a reason why some are more popular and some are not. Superman, for example, is a lesson in self-control. This is something that we all know that we have to learn deep down. So you can have mastery of self-control if you don't have mastery of self-control. Uh, you, you, we see where it leads in society. Addiction, crime, pr lives that are ruined. Think for one minute about the control it takes to be Superman. This is a man who, if he doesn't pay attention, will crush every bone in your hand while shaking it. Everything he does requires an absurd level of control. Think of Spider-Man and how it's only through responsibility that he achieves meaning. This is a truth in your own life too. Meaning is generally achieved through responsibility. Consider the X-Men. The X-Men teaches us what happens when you other someone. When you other an entire group of people, you get Magneto. And that's why he's one of the most complex villains in comics, because he's right. Pinocchio teaches us not to pursue impulsive pleasures to the detriment of the development of your character. And if you do that, you'll end up a beast and burden. That's why he ends up being a donkey. That's a heavy theme about a puppet that comes to life. Even something as benign as Harry Potter fits into this mold of transcendent texts. In the second book, he deals with a basilisk, which is a snake that'll turn you to stone if you see it. And that's nature, right? Nature will crush you. Nature will freeze you in a, in a moment of fear. There's very few things more terrifying. But underneath that too, you get the lesson that if you tackle a problem that is frightening, you'll be rewarded with something of value. Harry rescues a maiden from a basilisk, which is basically the same idea as St. George killing the dragon and freeing a town. 
Now, you won't fight dragons. Well, you will. You will, actually. They just won't be physical dragons. But the stronger challenges you overcome, the greater the reward will be for your life going forward. And I think there's a pattern in Shakespearean plays that fits this mold. See, Shakespeare started writing plays, or at least started putting on plays, in 1589. And you got to remember that all these dates are approximate. Records weren't always super accurate at the time. And I would argue that the first 14 plays, only three stand out as being great. Comedy of Errors, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and his most optimistic tragedy, Romeo and Juliet. Macbeth was written in 1606. So a while after it. And I think it's important to look at Shakespeare's career in two sections. There's a clear demarcation point because up until 1596, his plays are a bit frivolous without much human impact. Of the ones I've named, you've probably only really heard of Midsummer Night's Dream and Romeo and Juliet. Midsummer's a frivolous comedy and Romeo, well, Romeo and Juliet's a masterpiece. But what of all the others? It's all Battle of the Sexes, historical drama, or bloody, bloody revenge plays. If you took the pathos out of Macbeth, you'd get a pretty good idea of what Titus Andronicus is. So then what is it that causes that demarcation? Shakespeare was married and had three children, a daughter named Susanna, and then twins, Judith and Hamnet. In 1596, his son Hamnet dies at the age of 11. I really believe this changes everything for Shakespeare. His next two plays are all about the loss of youth and revenge, which I can only imagine are completely natural feelings when you have to bury a child. And now every play you've heard about follows this event. I think it made him ask serious questions about what life is and, and what it isn't. I also think he used his writings as a form of therapy to work out his feelings on these things. Every artist does. And I'm not trying to sound grandiose by saying this, but I think much like early religious texts, um, there are some truth within these plays. And when we understand them, we can actually live a better life. Abraham Maslow, you would think, has nothing to do with Shakespeare. He's a psychologist from the humanistic discipline, and you might have heard of Maslow. If you've heard about him, it's due to his pyramid of needs. Starts at the bottom with physiological and safety and works all the way up to self-actualization. Humanistic psychology is all about achieving your maximum potential. Now, Shakespeare has plays where there are suggestions on how to live a better wife, better, not a better wife, a better life. Macbeth is a warning about what not to do. And Romeo and Juliet might be the remedy. So what you want to do now is, is really just take a second and be honest with yourself here. Think about something that truly scares you. Something, think about something that blocks you from doing something. When I was a kid, I was so, like, it's an honest thing. When I was a kid, I was so worried about not being liked, right? Now think about something that makes you envious. Like, I, when I was young, I was just envious of everyone around me. So you got something that makes you scared, and something that makes you envious. And now let's talk about Macbeth. So I would imagine that if you've ever studied the play, the big takeaways are watch your ambition and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But again, these are concepts that are in practicality might be hard to grasp. And what you should come away from Macbeth thinking is, guess what? You're Macbeth. You are Macbeth. What happens to him will happen to you if you're not careful. And no, I'm not talking about meeting witches in a field or having them ruin their lives. I know when we think about things that are bad or evil, uh, and when people do that, we tend to think of, we tend to look at ourselves. Like when we see people do evil things, we look at ourselves and say, well, if I was in that position, I, I would be different. 
This is a really horrible misreading of how much of a monster you could be if given the chance. See, for all our enlightenment, we're ultimately creatures of context. So let's see what happens to Macbeth. So reading through the play the first time, it's really important to note how good of a person Macbeth is at the start. It's imperative that he's the best of us. If not, it's not a tragedy. For me, this is why the Star Wars prequels don't work as a tragedy, which they're trying to be. Anakin Skywalker is a jerk from day one. So of course he turns to the dark side. He's a great warrior. Everybody thinks so. Okay. So let's look at Macbeth. At the beginning, he's a really great warrior, right? Everybody knows that he's this great warrior. And the king uh, in Scotland is Duncan. And I think you need to consider if he is a good king or not. Think about this. He might be a good man, but is he a good king? At the start of the play, he's involved in one invasion and two insurrections. This is in the uh, 11th century. So this was a very warlike society. But you look at Duncan. Does he lead his army into battle? No. Does he even know what's going on in the battles? No. Does he preside over the execution of the traitors that are caught? No. Does his son get kidnapped nearly? Yes. After hearing those questions, is there a possibility that the state of Scotland is in is directly because of Duncan's leadership? Because as you go through the play, all these things go away under Macbeth's leadership. There's one rebellion, but it's a personal nature of nature between Macduff and Macbeth. So Macbeth meets the witches. They tell him the three prophecies, Glamis, Cawdor, King. Keep in mind how he reacts to this. He's not excited. He's terrified. He is deeply terrified. Then we also get a Banquo prophecy where it says the Banquo will be the father to an entire line of kings. And then when you think about, so Macbeth and Banquo meet the witches. Who's the first person that Macbeth shares his experience with the witches too? That's right, it's his wife, right? In his, in his letter to his wife, he even calls her his partner in greatness. His wife, on the other hand, describes him at one point as having too much of the milk of human kindness. Now, this is often viewed as a criticism by her of Macbeth. But if you look at it, it's probably actually why she loves him. And I think a cursory reading of the play will, will lead you to believe that Lady Macbeth is an evil presence in the play. But I think we need to look closely at what she actually stands to gain here by becoming queen with Macbeth as king. Would an evil person too need help from evil spirits to commit an evil deed? Right? Macbeth comes home and sees her and they are very much in love. Right? And that's important too because this play is very much about the fall of Macbeth but equally important is the dissolution of the marriage between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. And once again, for that dissolution to matter, we have to present them as a happy couple off the top. Watch when you read through it, how they deal with each other going forward from here. I would also ask the question of how each of their lives would be different if they had stuck together instead of broken apart as the play goes on. Early in the play too, when Macbeth comes home, we get this interesting soliloquy where he talks about, it's not that he's worried about killing Duncan to take the crown, it's that the problems won't end with the deed. And he's right. The consequences is the real problem. He's scared of what's going to blow back on him. This is, this is good fear, I think. This is a, an example of good fear. 
But Lady Macbeth pushes him and she pushes him by attacking um, a bunch of things about him. And I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of Lady Macbeth. If you love someone, why would you break them down to this level to get them to do what you want them to do? How difficult does your love for that person make this mistreatment? And that's why I asked you to think about what she stands to gain. At the start of the play, Macbeth is basically number two in the country behind Duncan. So it's not like the status jump is, is great. What Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are missing is safety. Because Duncan is a bad king, they're always at war. Macbeth is always at war. She wants him home. He wants to be home. And what does she use? What does she use to attack him, to convince him to kill Duncan? Well, she calls him, the, she basically calls him out for not being a man. And it works. It works on Macbeth. But why does it work on Macbeth? Because they don't have children. And I think this, this, uh, this revelation that the Macbeths don't have children and it, it's an effective tool against Macbeth creates a, a major envy in Macbeth. And that's going to be one of his driving forces. I asked you to think about something you envy. Well, Macbeth clearly envies people who have children. The most important thing, though, to take away here is that they plan the murder together. This is a joint effort between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Then Macbeth goes and kills Duncan as he sleeps. And I think you need to imagine what this looks like for him. And understand that as much as you're imagining it, it's way worse than what even Macbeth imagined. Yes, he's killed on the battlefield before. But all the things Macbeth was afraid of before the murder happen. The noise, the sound that Duncan makes, how Duncan looks. Um, later, Macbeth can't pray. He can't sleep. Imagine the look on Duncan's face when he wakes up and sees that Macbeth has a knife over him. The heartbreak, the blood. Macbeth can never sleep again. He can't go back. When Macbeth kills Duncan, he kills Duncan. But this is also where the relationship between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth dies. Because going forward, he's going to blame her for what this is. And she deserves some blame because she decided to meddle in a world that she does not understand. She does not understand his world. She does not understand soldiering and fighting. And she did not understand that pushing him to do something like this is you're pushing him past a point that he could handle. He even says, I would rather not know myself than know my deed. Wake Duncan with the knocking. I wish it could. Macbeth will never forgive her for this. And you could tell too, because Macbeth immediately regrets what he's done. Even though he hasn't been crowned yet, the crown is the furthest thing from his mind at this point. It's all about personal safety. And there's the whole business about the murder and the guards being blamed. Macbeth is clearly guilty, but no one says anything. Again, fear, why I keep coming back to it, is fear is like fire, right? It spreads so quickly and everywhere. The next time we see Macbeth is a few years later. And we get the most important soliloquy in the play. He says, To be thus is nothing but to be safely thus. Our fear in Banquo sticks deep. There is none but he whose being I do fear. Now I'd hearken back 
how they both reacted to the witches. He mentions Banquo laughed at the witches, whereas the witches have come to dominate his life. The fact that he does not have kids and Banquo does drives him crazy. And this kind of leads me to believe that he feels his life as it is, is ruined. I mean, why not just enjoy being king? He can't. Because if he did this to Duncan, then someone else could do it to him. There's no boldness in what he did. He killed a man while he slept. And that realization makes it so that everyone in the world can now jump and be a threat to him. And when you think about there's probably a time jump in the play. How long has he been living in fear? At this point, too, you can take a look at the, relate, the change in the relationship between Lady Macbeth and Macbeth from the start of the scenes. She has to send him messages just to get an audience with him. And her whole sentiment is, is that there's no point doing what they did if they don't reap the benefits. But she's queen now. So what benefit is she not reaping? She should have everything she wants if you believe that she's this ambitious, evil bitch, right? But she's queen and she's still not happy. What she's missing is the connection with him. She can't connect with him anymore. And she tries to bring it up to him. And he ends up making allusions to, uh, we, we, we haven't killed the snake yet. And then he envies Duncan, who's dead. Because he says, Duncan is dead, and now he's able to sleep and rest. And the envy's interesting. Because his envy is about people free from worry. What he desires most is not to be frightened. It's to be safe. If I were to conceive a super objective for the actor playing Macbeth, I'd like to think I'd choose to be safely king. I think it's pretty solid. He kind of hints now that something's going to happen with Banquo. Notice the difference in this one. He kind of hints at it to his wife. Doesn't involve her at all. And relationship experts suggest that the four worst things you can do to your partner are criticize, be defensive, have contempt, and stonewall them. Macbeth does three of these in one scene alone. He's defensive when she tries to calm him down. He goes on to scream about snakes and stuff. He shows her contempt by calling her my dearest Chuck. That's a far cry from earlier when he called her my partner in greatness. And then he stonewalls her by not bothering to tell her about the plan. So we can really see here how fear and worry is not only dominating his life, but putting immeasurable strain on his marriage. Macbeth is alone and isolated, unable to share what he's going through with anyone for fear of retribution, but unwilling to share with his wife because he resents her and blames her for what's happened. So Macbeth at this point goes on a killing spree. His fear dominates him. He kills Banquo. Who knows how many others he kills. He ends up resenting his wife so much due to his fear and the blame he holds her that he puts trust in the witches instead of her. And they exploit his fear until he lashes out at the Macduffs and that's ultimately his undoing. This is the last time we see Lady Macbeth. She's stricken with guilt. She's entered into a world in which she has no understanding. And this is the cost. But tie it back to what she said earlier. What's the point of doing something awful if it brings no happiness? If her and Macbeth had a happy relationship here and she was not rejected by her husband, would the guilt break her? I think it's clear that because she keeps having conversations to herself that she's never had with him, she's still reaching out. She's still trying to, to, to help him, to reclaim him. Her last lines of the play are, come, 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 come. Give me your hand. What's done 
cannot be undone. So Shakespeare's really specific with his punctuation. A colon, which follows give me your hand, is explicitly pointing out what follows is usually a, thinking, uh, a shift in thinking. To me, what's done is done, and what's done cannot be undone. It's not about Duncan or the act of killing him. I don't think she's that bothered by that. I think it's about her finally accepting that the relationship is over and it will never be the same. And I don't think this diminishes Lady Macbeth by saying this. I think if she does what she does, if she pushes him to murder Duncan and does what she does out of love, the journey for her is much harder and ultimately presents her as a much stronger character. If she's just power hungry, on top of being one-dimensional, there's no challenge. If she cares more about power than him, calling him out for a perceived lack of manhood is easy. Contrast that to calling someone you love dearly a coward because it's what they need to hear. That's hard. The power-hungry also usually don't go insane with guilt either. They may feel guilt. We'll see that in some of Shakespeare's other plays. What she actually goes through in this play is in many ways worse than Macbeth. And the fact that she lasts as long as she does is a real display of strength. I would argue there's only one time where we see the true Macbeth again. And it's once he realizes he's been betrayed by the witches, he releases his fear. He lets go of it. He says, lay on Macduff and let him be damned that first cries hold. He's himself again. And that's why the battle he has with Macduff before he dies is where he's at his most fierce and most dangerous. So the takeaway from this play is not that ambition needs to be checked or that absolute power corrupts absolutely. These are proverbs. The big takeaway is the truth that fear will destroy your life. And it doesn't need to be fear of death. Think of all the instances in your life that could be better if you weren't afraid of something. Every bad decision I've ever made in my life has been because I was afraid. So think about those things I brought to talk to you off the top. Remember what you're envious of. It's so easy to look at others and think they have it better. But do they? What about your life is good? What is something that you have that might make someone else envious? When I was a kid, my parents got divorced when I was 10. That was something that made me envious of others. But that comparison game got me nowhere. Instead, you got to compare yourself to who you were yesterday instead of who someone else is today. And finally, take that thing you're afraid of, whatever it is. If it has any effect on your life, wouldn't your life be better if it wasn't there? Don't get to where Macbeth gets. Macbeth gets to this point where he says, that which should accompany old age, such as honor, love, obedience, troops of friends, I must not look to have. But in their stead, curses, not loud, but deep, mouth honor, breath, which the poor heart would fain deny and dare not. Looking at Shakespeare's chronology, we see a distinct pattern. After his son dies, his plays truly become transformational pieces. With one exception. Hamnet, the name of his son, that dies in 1596. His greatest plays all take place after that death. Not that he didn't have success before, because he did. And the plays are good. But I think the death took him to a different place. Pain does that, but so does resiliency. The classics that came after were the Henry IV series, which tells us that at some point we have to grow up. Julius Caesar, which is really a lesson in friendship 
about being careful about throwing the word tyrant around. Um, it's very much like a be careful what you ask for kind of play. I've always looked at Hamlet as a dissertation of how we deal with grief. To be or not to be, the line, the famous line, to be or not to be, um, is not to live or not to live. It's to act or not to act. When we're faced with troubles, do we wilt or are we proactive and we push forward? Think about which one will serve you better. Twelfth Night teaches us that lying is bad. Um, Othello warns us of envy. Macbeth shows us that fear can destroy. And King Lear, a masterpiece, ultimately tells us that the result of following all these paths can be madness. Shakespeare writes The Tempest in 1610 to close out his solo writing career. And it's no surprise that the lesson in that one is letting go and forgiveness. So I've kind of omitted a big one. The year before his son dies, Shakespeare writes Romeo and Juliet. Off the top of this, I, I told you, you might have scoffed when I said it's the most optimistic of Shakespeare's tragedies. I mean, how can something be optimistic when it ends with five teenagers dead? Well, because it gives us the remedy of most of the problems we've pointed out in the other tragedies. I always thought it was a love story, but it's very much a story about rebellion. I want to give you a couple things to think about. How many families does this play deal with? So there's three. I mean, it's, it's probably more, but we deal with three. We're creatures of context, right? And the big context surrounding everything here that isn't talked about enough is the war between the Montagues and the Capulets. That's why there's three families involved, because it shows you that actions have consequences. You have the Montagues and the Capulets feuding, but you have the Aeschylus family, so uh, the Prince, Mercutio, and Paris, who loses as many family members as any other family involved. I also don't know if the main couple, Romeo and Juliet, are ever actually in love except for when they kill themselves. I think for both of them, it's very much about understanding what love is. For Romeo, it's actually a happy ending when he dies. It's scary, but ultimately when he kills himself, he doesn't feel the sense of tragedy that we do. He thinks he's joining her in heaven. To him, this sacrifice represents the understanding of love that he's been searching for most of his life. I also think we forget how young Juliet is. She's 13. We forget how young everybody is. Juliet's mom, her mother, Lady Capulet, is no more than 25 because she says she was a mother before she was Juliet's age. An observation, too, is how everyone deals with the fake death of Juliet in the play. And it's an interesting dissertation of how selfish we would blame ourselves when we're far from fault. When the nurse finds her dead, she thinks it's her fault. Her mother thinks it's hers for pushing the Paris marriage. Her father thinks the same. Romeo thinks it's his fault. The only person to blame is her because she's pretending. And we take blame all the time when it's not necessary. Is there a villain in the play? Well, it might be the friar, right? The friar should have known better. It's not Tybalt. He's defending his family. The most important thing of Romeo and Juliet, though, happens at the end of the play. The feud ends. Years of hatred are finally ended by love. That's the message here. That's the truth. In the end, the only force strong enough to conquer hate is love. There are some that believe that all of our emotions can be boiled down at their core to being love and fear. And it's kind of strange we ended up talking about these two plays today. You can live in love or you can live in fear. But these plays shows what the alternatives are. 
in the end, you're the only one who gets to choose. And now on April 1st, we will deal from the March 1986 Saturday Night's Main Event, the British Bulldogs versus the Dream Team. So no promos or anything to start us off here. Just Vince uh, coldly saying we're about to see the tag team titles defended, which I'm sure burned his lips as it came out of his mouth. Bulldogs already in the ring. No rule Britannia or anything. Just a fucking fat fuck Lou Albano uh, in what he would surely consider formal wear. As Beefcake and Valentine struck down, we're told that Mean Gene is on the way to the hospital, whatever. What is Brutus Beefcake supposed to be? Is he supposed to be a stripper? He's all decked out in yellow tiger stripes and a bow tie. I know Greg Valentine's a hammer, but to this day, I don't know what Brutus is supposed to be. Is he a gigolo? If he's a gigolo, why don't they use that David Lee Roth song? Oh, and now we're getting pre-recorded interview with Gene and the Champions. Johnny V, looking like a low-rent Lou Albano. Greg Valentine looks super relaxed slash high. And I got to say that whoever's lighting this promo must hate Johnny V wearing that hat. It covers his entire face, giant shadow. Valentine's puffy face. He's got this big, these big cheeks like a chipmunk with nuts in his mouth. And he goes, uh, we're the real tag team champions. Beefcake says something in the same. This is nothing. Back to the ring. Uh, Beefcake is being patted down by the ref like he just got arrested for banging the mayor's wife. And even his hair screams gigolo. We get a little recap, two of the Bulldogs beating them in a non-title match. Which was fine, right? I don't know also what's luscious about Johnny V. Um, he doesn't seem to me to be a sexual creature in any way. So the match starts. Valentine actually gets a, like powers Davy Boy Smith away at first. I've never seen that before. Then Vince declares Davy to be huskier than the Dynamite Kid. And then Vince is calling moves, which I don't know how I feel about. Vince saying, shoot the half is fucking strange. Valentine's getting thrown around by Davey. Dynamite comes in. He's so jacked, he can barely move his arms. And Beefcake has no idea how to sell a Dynamite shoulder tackle. Dynamite comes in. He's beating the shit out of Beefcake like they were backstage or something. And they do a wide shot of the ring. And the ring looks huge. Like it looks like it's 30 feet big. Davey does that like lifting arm bar. Gets him in the corner. And Bulldog then, Valentine comes in and Bulldog kind of gets like a bit of a press slam on Valentine. It's not quite there, but it's a really good near fall. And fuck Lou Albano for having a shirt with his fat face on it. Dynamite is just killing Valentine dead. Just destroying him. Even Jesse's like, oh, I don't know about Greg Valentine. Great knee drop from the top rope by Dynamite. And convince McMahon declares new champions on a Davy small package. I'm bothered, of course, that Greg Valentine has no knee pads. I don't like that. And then for some reason, the managers start pretending to fight. They don't actually fight. They just stand there being like, oh, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you on the outside. We take a break. We jump to the floor. And they tell us also that Hulk Hogan's been beaten to a pulp. Back in, Dynamite also has a bulldog on the back of his tights, whereas Davey has cursive writing. Look, this leads me to believe that Davey is the classy run. And Dynamite is probably the jealous psychopath that's probably ruined a ton of lives. Dream Team finally take control. They kick the shit out of Davey. Uh, they put him in the figure four. Giant leg drop from Dynamite to break it up. And I, I've, I struggled with a guy with kid in his name, like Dynamite Kid, being the tough guy of the team. I mean, I, look, I believe it backstage, but it's just strange. They should have called him the Dynamite Man or the Bully or the Asshole, something. Valentine does the most awkward second rope elbow drop I've ever seen. 
I'm a little surprised watching this that more of Valentine's offense isn't geared towards legs as his whole finisher is the figure four. He's doing like uh, shoulder breakers and they look good. Everything he does looks good. But shouldn't he be working the leg? Brutus also, he does these great, Brutus does these really great jumping stomps. It's like he jumps, he's like he's doing the high jump and then stomps on a guy's face. They actually look devastating based on the height. It's probably the best thing he does outside of fuck women for money. Hammer goes for the figure four, gets rammed in the corner. Nice drop kick uh, into the chest by Davey. The Bulldogs, what's cool about this match is the Bulldogs are like, just keep coming up short. And I think it's a great sell for their Mania 2 match. Then Valentine gets tossed into the ropes. When he bounces back, he and Dynamite hit heads. Dynamite falls on his back. Valentine falls on top with just his leg on top of him. Gets the three count. I love the finish. Just love it. And I do like, too, it's kind of foreshadowing about their wrestle, the end of their WrestleMania 2 match. It's not perfectly like this, but there's definitely a part of it. The only difference is when they hit Dynamite's head this time, Dynamite's outside the ring. So I think it's really cool that they set it up here. Crowd is pissed. Vince is like, well, that's luck. And Jesse's like, no, it's momentum. It's a bad Jesse, but it's okay. Uh, Brutus is celebrating with both belts in the air. It's, it's like such a, he looks like such a douche. Look, for the match, I'd go about three stars. It's not super long. But as a tool to get hyped about the Bulldogs winning, this was really great because they kept coming close. They already told the story that they got they beat the Dream Team in a non-title match. Now they kept having them on the ropes here. I really thought that did a good job and got me excited to see their title match at WrestleMania. And before I can even formulate that thought, we're cutting away for an update on Hulk Hogan. That's it. Good match, Saturday Night's Main Event. These are all fun. I love all the Saturday Night's Main Event matches. Listen, I'm Aaron. You can catch me on Now Entering the Royal Rumble. That's on Mondays on North-South where we're going through every single Royal Rumble entrant. Myself and JT. TNA Never Dies is on Tuesdays. Every other Tuesday, it'll come back soon. A delve into insanity with JT, Jenny Smith, and myself. Saturdays, we're doing No Holds Barred, JT and I. On alternative weeks, we're doing either we're counting down and ranking the greatest WWF world title changes of all time or we're fixing our GWWE lists five years ago we did a list of the 100 greatest wrestlers in WWF history five years later we're redoing the list with changes and whatnot breaking it down I love doing that project uh, but keep keep supporting Cronoso keep supporting their self I'm so proud of all the content we have here and um, all the great people that are involved if you want to get in touch with me Aaron D Justice on Twitter I'm old. I'm on Twitter. Let me know. Great talking to you guys. April Fools, motherfuckers.